Welcome to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders around the globe about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WMFDP and FDP Global specialize in helping insiders understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders, as well as outsiders, in partnering and building inclusive teams and organizations. I'm your host, Michael Welp, co-founder of the diversity and inclusion leadership development firm WMFDP and FDP Global, also a TEDx presenter and author of the book, Four Days to Change. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Insider Outsider podcast. I'm happy to have back um, one of my favorite guests. Julia Taylor Kennedy from the Center for Talent and Innovation. Thanks for coming back, Julia. My pleasure. I'm really excited for this conversation. The first one was so fun. Um, and this one we worked yeah. closely together on. So I'm really excited about this. That's right. So your new study that just has been released, what majority men really think about DNI and how to engage them out. You're right. It's right up our alley at White Men as Full Diversity Partners. So yeah, this is going to be a great conversation. So why don't you give us a little bit of an overview or however you want to start it, and we'll just be having a conversation about this whole study that you all just completed as you walk through it. Sure. Well, the first thing to know is getting involved in this study was actually a big new landscape for us at Center for Talent Innovation because We've been studying different issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion in different cohorts within the workplace for over 15 years now, but we've never done a study that looks just at white men or men who are in the majority at their companies to understand what their experience is when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So given that they still hold the majority of power in our organizations um, and are really crucial to being able to make DE&I core to the operations of the businesses, uh, we thought it was high time um, when we embarked on this study over a year ago. Um, and of course, we wanted you involved, Michael, given your deep expertise um, in the space but we wanted some data that that would would give a full numbers picture to some of the qualitative work and leadership development work that you've that you've built out. Then, of course, fast forward one year, and all of a sudden, we see CEOs and a lot of white men um, in powerful positions stepping forward and saying, "Black Lives Matter." Um, I'm making 15 commitments. My company is making 15 commitments to change on diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's an incredibly exciting moment to be in our space because we have the attention of a lot of mm. men in power. Um, and so our, our task force at the Center for Talent Innovation of about 80 companies are coming to us, primarily their chief diversity officers saying, okay, I have their attention now. How do I keep it and how do I build something lasting and sustainable? And we're saying in order to do that, you have to really understand how they think about DNI. And so that was the focus of the study. And that's perfect. We similarly we're getting all kinds of requests since the uh, Black Lives Matter, the death of George Floyd. And um, it's created this demand, this readiness, this uh, you know, 
numerous uh, senior leadership teams have been thinking about this, not mm-hmm. stepping into it for, for sometimes a year, sometimes years. And all of a sudden they're all like, we need to know about how to talk about race now. Mm-hmm. So perfect timing. Um, and you all ended up dividing, um, sort of typologizing different majority men into different groups, I noticed. That's right. Yeah, because we thought, okay, what chief diversity officers and people who have been working on this for a long time, what they're really doing is movement building within their companies. They're thinking about how can we um, how can we build support for this and, and really move it forward? And so like any movement, you have your base of supporters, you have your opposition, and you have your swing folks in the middle. And so we thought, what if we apply that grassroots organizing movement building frame to the workplace to thinking mm. about uh, majority men, as we call them, which is um, straight, cisgender, white men, plus straight cisgender men who are not white, but are in the majority um, at their companies. Um, How do we think about uh, what their attitudes are towards diversity, equity, and inclusion, and define your supporters, your opposition, your swing folks by that? So we fielded a nationally representative survey, as we do for most of our studies, um, and accompanied that with advice from yourself and a few other advisors as well as uh, qualitative research and focus groups and interviews. And one of the questions we asked in our survey was, how important is DNI to you at work? And then we looked at the answers from majority men and we knew we'd have kind of these three camps, but we had no idea how big they would be because, because you know, some of the loudest voices take up the most air in the room, but isn't necessarily your you know, who isn't numerically representative. So um, we looked at the answers Mm -hmm. and we found that only 10% of majority men said DNI is not important at all to me at work. So that's who we called our detractors, the people who don't think it's important at all. That was only 10% of our respondents. 42% of them said DNI is very or extremely important to me at work. So when you compare those two numbers, your base, your 42%, is much bigger than your opposition, your 10%. And we call those who think it's very important true believers. And then our swing folks in the middle, those who said it's somewhat important or even not very important, we think there's some hope there, that comprised 48% of our sample of majority men. So there are a lot of men there who can be persuaded um, that DE&I is very important. Mm. And that, that kind of fits my experience over the last 23 mm. years of the, at least the white men that I've worked with. They are all over the place in that and that there's a small, very vocally skeptic crowd. Some of them may even feel like hostages having mm. to come to a diversity training and, you know, and a lot of them confused, a lot of them wanting to do something, but don't know what they don't know or don't know what to do, um, are fearful of the topic because they know they see other people make mistakes and get, you know, in trouble or lose their job and things. So they're all mm-hmm. over the place. So makes sense. And, you know, I, one of the things that I also noticed is that you, you, you know, looked at a tone of intersectionality amongst majority men and you found 
differences in belonging score, um, you know, that differentiate white men or majority men that extroverts tend to have more feeling of belonging. Uh, those with parents, um, those with the same political views as their organization or higher economic class. And it's an interesting study part that you did there, because I think that, you know, there are many what we call insider outsider dynamics um, at operating at play, you know, including, for instance, if it's an engineering dominated firm, people from legal or HR might feel a little bit more like outsiders. But you mm -hmm. found a clear sense of less belonging for people who tend to be introverted or different political views or non-parents, because those are the outsider groups in some ways to the majority corporate cultures. And guys can use those insights to say, oh, I get a, I get a taste of what outsiderness might feel like in some of those ways. That's right. Yeah. A big theme for us this year in our research is belonging. That's a thread that is going through all of the research we're doing this year. And so we really dug down to it in this study because we wanted to understand for men who are in the majority at their companies, um, what does belonging look like for them? In our last study, we looked at, uh, we defined belonging in the workplace and we looked at what it meant for um, women of color versus white women, all of these different underrepresented groups within the workplace. And this time we wanted to understand, well, are there some majority men who feel outsider, like they're outsiders, right? Who they feel less like they belong. And so we applied this rigorous methodology that we had developed for our last study to assign them a belonging score between zero and 10. As you point out, Michael, we saw that, um, even if you're a majority man in the majority at your company, if you're shy or have an introverted social style, you have a lower be uh, median belonging score. You're likely to have a lower belonging score than your colleague who is very extroverted because our corporate culture currently rewards that extroverted behavior. Um, and if you're not a parent, it's harder for you to bond and connect uh, even as a majority man with those around you mm -hmm. um, and kind of get past that surface level of interaction. So while we also look to see for non-majority men who are introverts, what their belonging scores were, their belonging scores went down even further. So introverted non-majority men have lower belonging scores than introverted majority men. Um, so we're not saying here that the effect of being introverted is the same as being outside mm -hmm. of the majority. But as you point out, it can be a point of entry for majority men to say, think of how it feels to be, to be introverted. Um, think of how it feels when everyone's talking about their kids and you don't have kids. And that gives you just a little taste of how it might feel if you were a black man at this company. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A little taste. Yeah, it's not the same. It's not equivalent. I don't mean to say that, but it gives you a sense of what it yeah. feels like to be excluded. Yeah, one of the things we talk about is the sameness difference paradox. And so people shouldn't equate it with being the same, but there is some degree of commonality and some visceral sense of outsiderness mm -hmm. and this bigger difference and I'm, I'm not going to have the same outside at all being introverted as I would think for instance mm -hmm. 
Thanks. So what else do you want to share? Well, a couple of things. Um, if we want to go back to uh, some of what we found mm-hmm. about the different archetypes, is my signal okay? Can you hear me okay? Yep, I'm good. That okay, great. great. You you broke up a little bit, so that's why I went off of video just to make uh, sure. <laughs> um, okay. There were a few things that stood out about each of these groups, detractors, persuadables, and true believers uh, that I thought might be good to highlight for the audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, one yep. is that for uh, detractors, what when we zoomed in and just looked at detractors and and what was uh, what their attitudes were and and what their behaviors were at the workplace. One of the questions we asked was, um, one of the questions we asked was, what's the the biggest obstacle for you that keeps you from getting involved in diversity and inclusion? And they were most likely to respond, there's no benefit to me in my career. Uh, and, And we also picked up on a lot of attitudes about feeling like outsiders themselves. And so what we think um, is going on for those 10% of majority men who are detractors is they feel disenfranchised themselves and fearful that a focus on diversity and inclusion on including other work, uh, including other employees will mean that they'll feel even more like an outsider, more disenfranchised in the workplace. Um, and that, mm. that this is, actually works against them in their careers. So that so was I, one I thing. A, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, no, that's fast. That's fascinating. And I, I think a couple things about that, Julia, is, you know, they don't think that DNI benefits them. Uh, what I find in a number of us as white guys is a zero sum mindset that senses mm-hmm. if others gain, if others gain, I lose. And, you know, and we might con- unconsciously or consciously assume that the playing field level and that any diversity effort or efforts towards others to be more inclusive is going to exclude me. And I'm at the short end of the stick. Um, and often that's a partial view, in my opinion, that doesn't include some of the subtle, a lot of the subtle dynamics that, that people of color and white women are navigating all the time um, that I don't have to navigate as a majority man. So I don't see that. And I just think the playing field's level and it's like, now everybody else is getting the advantage. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I would say that DNI be- efforts, in my experience, overwhelmingly benefit white men too. And this group doesn't see that. And, and actually, it doesn't look like the persuadables see that that much either. That's right. Yeah. So, so among our persuadables, um, you know, we asked, we also asked our respondents a question about, you know, what a diverse team, how a diverse team might benefit the organization. And we looked at three things. Um, Diverse teams might drive innovation. They might improve your reputation as a leader, and they might help you become a better leader. Detractors basically didn't see any of those things. So for detractors, we had nearly 0% across all three of those um, who thought that diverse teams would drive innovation, make them better leaders, or improve their reputations. For those who were persuadable, 
they saw that diverse teams or many of them saw that diverse teams drive innovation. I think that business case has been hammered home uh, by many studies, repeated um, reminders from our leaders and from our diversity departments and lots of large organizations. But persuadables didn't see much in it for them either. They did not tend to agree that uh, having a diverse team would make them a better leader or improve their reputation at their company. Um, And so I actually think that this is really instructive for those of us in this field, that in order to Mm -hmm. really make enduring change, as many of our organizations are committing to do, we need to make the case and make it true that leaders succeed and thrive and move up in their career in part because they're great at building diverse, inclusive teams. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think um, when, when I only think that it leads to innovation, my perspective of what diversity is that leads to that innovation is often diversity of thought. Mm-hmm. So I'm probably I'm not noticing as much race, gender, other dynamics, maybe a little bit, but that it's really, I emphasize, well, what we really need is diversity of thought on my team, differing perspectives. And I might even say, I don't care what the race is. I don't care what the gender is, but diversity of thought. And, um, and, and then, and then eventually um, along the journey, um, we discovered that it's not just diversity of thought. We need a lot of different perspectives around a lot of different social identity groups as well, because that's where some of the perspectives of different diversity thought comes from. And, you know, we, we, from the get-go in our work, talk about how this is uh, learning about diversity, but it's really about leadership development. And what are the things that I don't know, I don't know, that impact my ability to partner with others, partner and lead different people. And um, this is going to make you a better leader from the get-go. Um, around some concepts that you've never thought of before. Most leaders don't think of leadership skills like courage as a muscle they can grow, or they don't Mm -hmm. think about how to show up at a head and heart level as a leadership skill to move different constituents that resonate more at the heart, or the ability to sit and have messy conversations and be able to tolerate ambiguity and see multiple perspectives as opposed to look for one right view. And all those muscles that are kind of the newer edge, in our view, of leadership skills that really help diversity partnerships. Um, white guys and majority men usually eventually see, wow, these are skills that I need today, not just for diversity, but for the business world too, since there's so much chaos and turbulence and change. And the same partnership skills, including listening to understand versus debate and fix are actually going to help me in my marriage or my partnership at home or my parenting at home. So, so much benefit for, for majority men when they actually scratch the surface and start diving in. So they'll see beyond just, this is more for innovation. They'll see how it's not only just making me a better leader, it's making me a better partner uh, at work and at home. Uh, I, yeah, I think there's so much in what you just said. Um, a couple of things that stood out to me. One is I agree with you. I think a lot of this is about education and making sure there's kind of consistency in education and in how leadership is portrayed within an organization to those who are rising up, um, that there needs that, that people 
who have realized this, who are very senior in their careers, maybe through the frame of diversity, equity, and inclusion, maybe through the frame of client service or meeting new markets or understanding how um, their consumer base is diversifying and needing to try to be curious and understand that consumer base. I think that 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 connection between head and heart that is increasingly needed as you move into senior leadership, that's not something that senior leaders always talk about. And it's not something that's always role modeled. Um, it's, It's harder to talk about, I think, our notions of masculinity sometimes keep men from talking about it even when they're getting good at it. So that's a piece of this too, I think, is getting senior leaders to focus on this and how they shape um, and model leadership for others. And in fact, we find that senior leaders are more likely to be what we call true believers, to believe that diversity, equity, and inclusion is very important because they've gotten to a position in their career where they understand how crucial it is for the future of their companies. Um, but something else mm. that we picked up among the persuadables and, and what you just said made me think about this too is points to a lack of education as well, which is that, that from our persuadables, we saw all kinds of um, attitudes towards topics of diversity and inclusion that sometimes were at odds with one another. So we heard from mm. persuadables that um, you know, they're they're more likely than detractors, for example, to say diversity and inclusion efforts benefit everyone. So there are there's a good chunk of persuadables who believe that, but there's also a good chunk of persuadables uh, that believe focusing on difference is divisive. And of course, mm. we know that if you can't focus on difference, you can't understand it. So um, th- there's confusion here, I think, and, and need for better education. Um, we find that persuadables tend to be introverts. So they may not naturally seek out the kind of networking event that their mm-hmm. employee resource group is, is um, hosting or difficult conversations across difference. And so they need to be kind of drawn out and drawn to those conversations and maybe given messaging unbidden um, and education unbidden. Uh, The last thing I'll say is, you know, we spoke to one white male Gen Xer who was in the persuadable camp. And what he told us was, on the one hand, he does get involved in DNI and respects the work. But on the other hand, to what you were saying earlier about the level playing field, he thinks everyone's created equal and has the ability to take advantage of the same opportunities. So he respects DNI, but he doesn't fully understand the inequities that DNI is looking to solve for. And I think that kind of contradiction is just a need for greater education and understanding um, that should be more uh-huh. baked into sort of the core journey of someone through a company rather than over on the side if they so choose to seek it out. Mm. Yeah, so several things to come up for me when I hear what you just described in several layers is this this assumption that focusing on differences is divisive. Mm-hmm. Um, to me to me is an indication of a particular mindset that is limiting a, a, a viewpoint of what I'm seeing going on in the workplace. And that is what we call the sameness difference paradox. And Mm -hmm. that I can look at 
things through the sameness side, or I can look through the different side, or I can do the both and the both. But if I'm only looking through the sameness, I might feel like, you know, I, from my intent of equality, I don't see color. I don't see gender. I just treat everybody the same. That's what fairness looks like. Not realizing that, that my intent is equality. The impact on that is others hear that is, yeah, you'll, I'll treat you the same as, you'll treat me the same as long as you fit into my box. I fit into your culture. I keep you comfortable. And I'm, I'm driving a simulation into my definition of sameness. And I don't even know I'm doing that. And Mm -hmm. um, so others are leaving parts of themselves at the door. And so the challenge as a leader now is how can I be colorblind, gender blind, and color conscious, gender conscious at the same time? How can I travel that paradox and see the world through the sameness view and look at the other end and see it through the difference view? If I'm only looking for sameness, I'm going to connect to my colleagues of color. I'm going to find hobbies. I'm going to find different things that I have in common with them. I'm going to look for that. And meanwhile, they're like, will you please see that I have a different experience in the world, that I have Mm -hmm. a different reality that I have to deal with and live with. Same for women colleagues. And, you know, not every person individually, they probably feel like some of their differences are, are focused too much on. And then meanwhile, there's another colleague of women or a person of color that's like, thank goodness you finally see my difference. And so I've got to learn as a majority male to navigate the sameness difference paradox and be in the both ends of it. And my comfort level typically has come from hanging out on the sameness side, just pretending group differences don't exist treating everybody as the same, seeing the level playing field. And I don't see the full version of what's going on in the workplace when I do that. Um, An example of that is, you know, it would be very, very natural for me from a sameness paradox perspective to say all lives matter. And I just don't get why people saying black lives matter, because that's just like focusing on differences and that's divisive. And um, I don't see the interconnection between them. But if I can see both sides of that, I can say, yes, all lives matter and black lives matter in a world where the world is saying that they don't in so many different ways. I Mm want to stand up and say that. So um, this this concept of, um, you know, differences is divisive is coming from, in my view, a limited viewpoint of the sameness focused mindset. And the other thing. Um, you know, we talk about self-interest that white men start to see innovation um, as a self-interest. They start to see how it makes them better leaders. And when we are able to understand uh, that we're white men and that we start to see ourselves as a group, even though there's differences amongst us, um, we have a culture. And that culture has boxed us into certain traits, styles, assumptions about leadership, and we leave other parts of ourselves at the door. And so we basically are in a cultural prison where we have to be the rugged individual. We can't say we don't know. We don't can't say we ask for help. Sometimes we have to um, do jump into problem solving and action sometimes before we have time to reflect. Um, and we have to leave our emotions at the door um, because the culture says it's you're either rational or emotional. And, you know, all those things that don't emphasize relationships, don't emphasize slowly slowing down and connecting, which is where partnership happens, looking for the one right answer. 
um, we are trapped in those mindsets, which limits our ability to understand diversity and it limits our ability to partner with others, including outside of work. You know, mm-hmm. so if I if I find my if I discover my white male culture, I become more choiceful and able to step outside of it when it serves me better. I use it because it's got a lot of strength and I have the freedom now to step outside of it and become more in my heart to resonate with some leaders, more slow down and listening to understand before trying to fix something. I am able to be in my head and heart at the same time. I'm able to be vulnerable and say, sometimes I don't know, which is going to resonate with people and have them feel me more authentic and trusting and I'm going to be able to sit in the messiness of some of these issues when I've wanted to try to simplify them before and take out all the uncertainty. And that makes me more accessible to uh, colleagues, makes me more believable to colleagues of color. Um, it's why some of our clients, um, the white guys, their spouses have sent thank you cards to the <laughs> company um, because they, their, their white male husband listens differently and is more present. Um, so talk about self-interest, man, this, I, I become a better human. I become a better parent, a better spouse, a better leader, um, in ways that are life changing for me. So, you know, we get to throw out this concept that somehow others gain and we lose or Mm -hmm. this concept that I'm, I'm simply helping others with their issues. No, this is our issue too. And our freedoms at stake in terms of being fully human and being able to see more clearly so many issues that the cultural lens we have on kind of blinds us to. So I know that's a lot I threw out, but that's what's coming up for me as I hear the mindsets that your studies indicate we can be trapped in. Right. Well, and I think to your last point about uh, you brought up zero sum game earlier and whether uh, there's anything in it for uh, white men to be doing DEI work, or whether it's more of you know uh, give back to the world or or charity work, um, is something that we really mm-hmm. were thinking about as we shaped up this study because that that is a mindset, right? And I think it's reinforced by what you see, especially as you're moving through competitive ranks and competitive industries um, at your company. You want to be more like the people you see at the top. What they're showing you is that they've, you know, that they they embody this white male culture, and that's what's worked for them to move up in their careers. And so that's what you think will work for you. And it also seems like if you give an inch, someone else will take it. But... (laughs) Right. I mean, that's what it looks like as as you're climbing and as in your early years Mm -hmm. in your career. So even if you're coming out of college, having taken um, courses that are now offered that weren't offered 20 years ago about gender studies or race studies or, you know, you were raised by a feminist and you hold these views privately, you're encouraged not to exhibit that behavior uh, in your day to day at work. And I do think that a lot of men and I've seen this Mm. with my peers as they look to climb in their careers, they have this conundrum between the beliefs um, and the values that they hold in their private life versus what they want to do to serve their ambition in their career, as well as what they think will help them, you know, provide for their life and their family's life. But 
um, what we found in this research, which I think is for us the most exciting finding and really ties together the theme around belonging and this deep look at uh, majority men in the workplace is we find that those majority men, which are primarily straight white men, what majority men, those who belong the most are those who believe in DNI. The highest oh. belonging scores correlate for those true believers. And those are far higher than the belonging scores for persuadables or detractors. And we did a lot of thinking and talking to you and to others about why that is. What's the cause? Is it because, um, you know, true believers are at a, at a point in their career where they are generous of spirit and, you know, they're such insiders that they can then include others? Or is it that getting involved in DNI and seeing the world that way um, helps them connect to their workplace community. And we think there's this virtuous cycle that happens, right? If you're kind of seeing possibility mm -hmm. and you're seeing, uh -huh. um, and, and you're, you're really thinking about the future of your organization and connecting it to the future of the world and the country that we live in, then you're more likely to, to feel you belong, feel connected and supported and seen um, and proud to be a part of your company if you're really engaged in DNI, and th mm -hmm. those are the core elements of belonging at work as we define it. We also see all kinds of positive career outcomes for those who feel they belong. Mm -hmm. So those who are true believers are more likely to be engaged. They're less likely to be stalled in their careers. So, so to mm -hmm. your point about is this a zero sum game, or do you is there something in it for? white men who get involved in DNI, we think there actually is that your career soars when you mm -hmm. are engaged in this work. Yeah, and that fits that fits my experience, Julia's. I mean, what you just described is a perfect business case for white men for themselves to become to do the work to to move along the continuum across persuadables to be true believers. Whatever that learning and engagement is and reflection on these issues of diversity and inclusion, you grow your own sense of belonging. You're not just helping other people with their issues, but you indeed um, make you know massive increase in your own feeling of belonging, as you said, unlocks other kinds of things as well. And it's you're you're less likely to say, I'm too busy um, mm -hmm. when you see how much it's benefiting yourself to at a deep core level and sort of core to your own sense of um, career jump, you know? And I think you, you start to learn how to listen across difference as opposed to only sameness. And you become, ha, are able to have better partnerships with white women and men and women of color, which has you increase your sense of belonging because you have better partnerships with them. I That's think it's right. Cyclical. That's right. I mean, and let's be real, you know, at the top of, co of companies, it is still predominated by uh, white men, but there are tons of women and people of color who work for companies today at all levels. So it makes sense that if you're more able to connect across difference, you feel more connected to your organization as a whole. Mm -hmm. Now, a little bit later in your study, you talked about true believers and their actions. And, um, you know, one of the things I noticed, you know, that true believers are more likely to mentor 
um, people that are different than them or sponsor people different than them, um, but that they still aren't necessarily engaged in some of the ERG groups or confronting their own peers or confronting their own colleagues in blind spots or um, who use behaviors that demean others or have microaggressions. And I think I think that points to some of the dynamics you were just starting to talk about earlier around peer dynamics, peer, you know, that they may have internal feelings or beliefs, but they may be in conflict with external mm-hmm. um, behaviors, Behavior. and I, norms. And I, I, I think that there's a huge peer intervention process that has to happen amongst majority men in order to shift from, you know, what you could say being part of the club of not seeing these dynamics and not helping them, but actually hurting them to actually, I'm going to gain status amongst my peers by having our, us have each other's backs to point out our blind spots, to mm-hmm. challenge each other. And that we won't make progress on diversity and inclusion until we actually get the majority population actively involved in educating each other and intervening with each other. Because right now the burden for educating often falls to women, um, and men of color and white women and other groups, LGBT groups, outsider groups traditionally, and it has to be picked up by the insider groups. So the majority men not only have to do their own internal learning, as you were talking about, but need to start to engage in their peer interactions. So one marker in a culture that I think is pivotal is, do I see insiders engaging and challenging each other? as insiders mm-hmm. around our lack of awareness, around our interventions, around, you know, I've seen some very powerful examples of what I think you called partnership level, where I've seen white men intervene with other white men in front of the group um, when they've interrupted a woman and not, not, and it's been, you know, it sort of didn't get stopped or noticed. And we actually start calling attention to our unconscious behaviors, not from a, way with a two by four, but from a place of support and challenge, a place of love and say, Hey, I noticed you just interrupted her. Um, and it was her idea first. Good job. Um, Julia, appreciate your idea. And by the way, I might unadvertently be the next person doing that. I want somebody to call me on that behavior too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In this, in this part of our study, Michael, we were so inspired by your work. And I actually think that the way you interpreted Um, the action and inaction of our true believer group um, is spot on. So we saw that true believers, those who really believe uh, DNI is important, are engaging in some action uh, to move DNI forward. Most of that action has to do with mentoring or sponsoring or advocating for, um, for men of color, women of color, and white women. And, um, and as you pointed out to me uh, in another conversation, that is really individual behavior. That can be done almost privately, right? Some people talk about it, um, but it's, it's also sort of more acceptable and accepted uh, form of sort of bringing someone along. And what's less common are those more difficult confrontations in the moment about behavior that that might be even more damaging to someone's ability to rise, which is 
behavior that demeans them. Um, you know, and it can be something as subtle as, as not giving someone credit for an idea, but that subtlety can really impact then how they're recognized and their reputation with the company and their ability to progress. So uh, I agree with you completely that, that there needs to be this other category, right? There are the believers who believe in DNI and know it's important and are starting to, to do some things that really benefit underrepresented groups at their organizations. And then there are true partners in the way that you define it, who are in the trenches making a difference, um, both in terms of supporting people as they rise and calling out bad behavior when they see it uh, within their peer group. Um, so, so we want to see more partners and we think that true believers, of course, you can, you can move them into partnership through education. We're having all kinds of uh, conversations with very senior leadership teams within companies right now as they think about the commitments they want to make um, towards making their statements about Black Lives Matter real. And then once they make those commitments, how can they meet the commitments and the goals that they're setting out for themselves, often with a firm deadline, which we think is great. Um, but we hear a lot of fear and uncertainty and concern from leaders who have been in their companies for 30, 40 years, who feel so confident in 90% of their jobs. And now that there's a piece of their job that's about this stuff that they have very little practice in, it's enormously intimidating. And even within mm -hmm. their groups, you know, it's the, the safe spaces that they're setting up to really talk about the foundations of uh, systemic racism in this country and to think about what is my individual commitment to drive towards our company commitments. Um, there's a lot of timidity and hesitancy to, to call out a microaggression or define something as a microaggression because uh, they're not practiced. They haven't done it before. So we need to build up that muscle memory and comfort. Something that I've seen um, at a company that has gotten better at this, you know, I don't know if there's a company culture that's great at it, is um, they have a norm of if they're about to say something uncomfortable, they say, I have a watch out. And it kind of jolts the group out of, you know, the flow of the conversation that they have. And they can say, I have a watch out you know, I notice exactly what you just said, Michael, right? I notice that when um, Gwen speaks, uh, we often interrupt her. Or um, when Mike shares an idea, he often doesn't get credit for it. Um, let's watch out for that going forward. And if I participate, please let me know. So um, I, I think that these kinds of habits are things that we can learn. We learn so much every day in the workplace. This is something else that we can just focus on and get better at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, Julia, the, in our last uh, five minutes here, just thinking about this, I think the, you know, there's, there's the, you know, you said we're not very good at it. It touches on the five or 10% of our behavior that we don't have much muscle around or practice. And yeah, it's because it's out of the norms of what I call the white male culture box, which is be decisive, understand the problem immediately, move towards fixing it. And all of a sudden we're sitting with these issues where it's overwhelming. There's a lot of emotion involved in these topics that are constantly impacting everybody. There's a lot of multiple realities, multiple viewpoints on what's, 
right and what's wrong around any topic. And we have to, we have to, you know, sort of like writing with your opposite hand. It's like, Mm -hmm. feels awkward. It feels like you don't have that confidence. You don't have that skill because all of a sudden you're, you're asked to practice these leadership skills that are outside of white male culture box, like sitting with messiness, um, speaking from your heart, um, owning that you're confused and asking for help and being able to say, I've got part of this and I'm confused about part of this. And what a great um, way to stretch your leadership style into new behaviors that you can then use, not just around diversity, but all around business skills. And as I said, they can help in your life too, in your personal partnerships. So yeah, finally we get to show up. Ed Shine wrote a great book called Humble Inquiry. And he mm-hmm. said the normal culture, the normal culture in the U S emphasizes too much doing and telling and it's overbalanced. Uh, and we need to balance it more with humbleness and much more inquiry and white male culture minimizes relationship building just enough to get the task done. And, you know, when we're with diversity in the workplace, we need to build more relationship. We need to build more partnership with each other. And so we need to step out of the minimal relationship building box and, and bring our hearts, bring slow down and create connections, understand how we're impacting each other, use bumps that we have with each other, a way to build partnerships. And that's a whole different skill set. You're right. Anything you want to share in the last minute or two? Uh, as we close, Julia. Just one thing that came to mind as you were speaking, which is the CEO of uh, Center for Talent Innovation, Pat Philly Cruchel, wrote a foreword to our report um, that I think if people don't even read the rest of the report is great reading. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she built her career doing uh mergers and acquisitions and turnarounds uh, at big media companies. And, mm. and what Pat writes is that when she entered HR and diversity and inclusion work towards the end of her career, what she was able to apply were a lot of the same skills that she needed um, in her M&A work, which, was, which mm. connects to some of what you were saying. Right. In order to really change a culture or merge a culture, you have to do a lot of listening and understand where the culture Mm -hmm. is at today. You have to be humble and vulnerable in order for people to accept you as their new leader. You have to think about what are the business opportunities and sometimes get uh, stubborn around those. Right. And really drive toward a new vision to turn uh, a a company um, and business around. And she said the the thing that she had to add to her skill set um, in this work was patience and more of a long-term view. Mm. So th- the reason I think that's so helpful is it's encouraging for business leaders and for majority men to say there are principles of leadership that I have already learned that I may not have focused on, but that I have that I can apply in this space in a new way, that I can build on. It doesn't have to all be new, right? There are things that that I may not have highlighted or focused on, but that I understand how to do. And then I need to build up this muscle memory to have tough conversations in an area where, you know, I didn't get education. I didn't get educated uh, in school. So I have Uh to self-educate a little bit. 
I have to think a little bit more long term. But there are elements of uh, me, if I'm a good leader, of my le- leadership style that I can apply in this space as well. Mm. You know, one of our one of the our CEO colleagues um, did a listening tour for their customers, um, and she found a lot of perceptions that the they thought that the her organizational leaders were arrogant. They don't listen. They don't, um, you know, and so. This question of patience and humility and listening is is needed to balance out the overuse of some of the doing and telling traits that and action traits that uh, white men are so encouraged to lead with. And so there's not just a benefit internally for partnerships. There's a benefit in partnerships with customers, too. Mm-hmm. So... I am so excited to be in this collaboration with you uh, since we sat down, what, a year ago in a Thai restaurant in Virginia and talked about partnering. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to continuing the collaboration. Same here. Thank you so much. I remember we were both on business trips and crossing through Dulles and and we met we met in transit and it was a wonderful dinner together and and it's turned into a wonderful partnership. So I really appreciate That's it. That's right. <laughs> Back in the days when we could meet in person. So we'll That's we'll do right. that again someday. <laughs> Sounds good, Michael. Sounds good. Thanks All for right. having me on. Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WFTP and FTP Global specialize in getting insiders to understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders as well as outsiders in building inclusive teams and organizations. Our work takes us around the globe, transforming people and companies towards a more inclusive world. For the show notes about this podcast and more about the work of WMFDP and FTP Global, visit wmfdp.com slash podcast.